Good day, and thanks for joining us for our Corn and Soybean Outlook update. I'm Jim Mintert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an Associate Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue, and Michael Langemeyer, who is an professor here at uh, Purdue in Agricultural Economics and also Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. So we're going to talk today primarily because we had the update from USDA this week with respect to crop production, so new yield estimates for the 22 crop, and also updated World Ag Supply Demand Estimates from USDA's uh, World Ag Outlook Board. So let's just take a look at the crop production report first. The November uh, data for corn uh, was really focused on what happened with respect to yield. Uh, USDA did increase the yield estimate. Uh, they came up with 172.3. Um, that's up a little bit compared to where we were in uh, October and obviously uh, lower than where we were uh, this time last year. I've got some of the key states listed there at the bottom of the slide. And uh, for those of us in Indiana, we're down, I think, a little over 2%, 2.1% compared to last year. But Michael, you kind of pointed out earlier, uh, we're actually up compared to where we were on last month's report. So some of the revisions this month versus last month are kind of interesting. I know you took a look at that. Yeah, certainly Indiana is up a little bit from last month. In fact, five, four or five bushel. Uh, in uh, Illinois now is supposed to be a record, 215 bushel average in Illinois. Uh, Iowa up a little bit at 202 bushel. That's also a really good yield for Iowa. Uh, obviously, uh, Minnesota's up from last year, but it's also up from last month. Last year, Minnesota had a pretty serious drought up there. But it's really a story, a story of two regions. Uh, the, 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 uh, the eastern Corn Belt is, is that trend or, or slightly above, whereas the western Corn Belt is way below trend. You start looking at the yields in, uh, in South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas, and it's just downright depressing. Yeah, and so Nathan, you and I were talking about this earlier, and this will come up a little bit when we talk more about basis, but the implications of that are that we're going to have to pull some corn from the eastern Corn Belt and move it west, which is a little bit unusual in terms of the grain uh, movement and has some implications for basis, right? Yeah, we're going to show a chart later that kind of uh, demonstrates from the basis perspective some of what Michael was talking about. And yeah, I think it definitely is showing we're going to need to pull corn uh, east to west this year, given kind of what, what's going on with production out there. And probably north to south a little bit because you start looking at the feedlots in Panhandle of Texas, Panhandle of Oklahoma, and in southwest Kansas, they're, they're short corn. Yeah, so it's going to be kind of interesting. That implies some pretty strong basis levels out west to encourage that movement. So uh, we'll see how that plays out as, as the year unfolds. If you look at the corn production estimates, which of course is a combination of the acreage as well as the yield number, and compare it to what the trade was expecting prior to the report's release earlier in the week, um, we were maybe on the USDA was maybe on the high end of the trade, but not not completely. I mean, it was a little bit higher than a lot of the trade was expecting, but the deviation was not all that large. But it was enough to get kind of a negative response. And so, let's just kind of summarize some of the key aspects of USDA's uh, updated balance sheet. There weren't a lot of changes. Really, the focus was mostly on that increase in yield and the increase in production. So, as we mentioned earlier. The new U.S. yield estimate, 172.3, up from 171.9 last month. That puts corn production now at 13.93 billion bushels compared to 13.895 last month, so a rel relatively small change. Uh, they did bump up domestic usage, and that was really all in the feed usage category, which is kind of interesting because that's a residual category that they don't have a direct measurement of. Uh, ethanol usage was unchanged. We'll talk more about ethanol here in, in a few minutes, but uh, no change in USDA's forecast with respect to corn going into ethanol production. 
and no change in the export forecast. We'll talk about that in a little more detail as well. That's still sitting at 2.15 billion bushels. And the carryover changed a little, up 10 million bushels from last month in terms of USDA's projection at 1.182 billion bushels. Um, as you look at the ethanol data, uh, it's kind of interesting what's been taking place. This is based on the data from Iowa State University where they simulate uh, kind of a stylized uh, ethanol plant in the upper Midwest. And they estimate the daily plant margins, uh, so how much of a margin above their, their input cost they have. And on the right-hand side of the slide, you can see how those margins have improved in recent weeks. We're up to not quite 50 cents a gallon. So that's one point, the improvement that's taken place in recent weeks. That's good news in terms of encouraging some uh, corn usage for ethanol. The other point on that chart that you might want to take note of is comparing where we are now, and that 47 cents is last Friday's estimate, uh, to where we were this time last year approximately. And we were up well over a dollar this time last year. So margins have been improving in recent weeks, but they are still well below where they were this time last year. If you look at the ethanol production numbers, these are the weekly ethanol production numbers from uh, the Energy Information Agency. And you compare where we've been this year, and this just starts with the current marketing year in early September, and compares this year versus last marketing year. You can see for most of that time, we've been well below where we were this time last year. But again, on the right-hand side of that chart, you see this year's production numbers coming up and starting to match where we were last year. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. Obviously, the res what's going on in the U.S. economy is going to have a big impact. Gasoline usage is going to have a, a big impact here. I guess the encouraging thing that I see, Michael, is the fact that those ethanol margins have improved a little bit, right? Yeah, that certainly should be very positive for production. Yeah. So let's take a look at the exports. Corn exports have been pretty weak, and there's been a lot of discussion of this in the trade. So this chart takes a look at how this year compares for the first 10 weeks of the marketing year to uh, going all the, each marketing year going all the way back to 2015. So each one of those years is just looking at the first 10 weeks of data for that particular year and comparing that to what we have seen so far here in 2022. And notice the blue bar is the exports to all destinations. The red bars are exports to China. Uh, neither one of those look very encouraging, and that's been the talk, has been relatively weak export performance so far. And so the question is going to be whether or not that turns around. Uh, one of the considerations there, obviously, with, with respect to China, has been the lockdowns and the impact that's ha had on the Chinese economy. Um, some news stories here in the latter part of this week suggesting they might be relaxing their COVID policy, which would be positive for the Chinese economy, which might have a positive impact on, on exports to China. Um, the other negative, obviously, is what's taking place with the value of the dollar. And, of course, the strength of the dollar has made uh, U.S. exports relatively more expensive than they would have been otherwise. So that's been holding us back as well. Um, if you look at USDA's ending stocks estimates, that just a real small change, again, filtering through with respect to that production increase showing up in higher ending stocks, up about 10 million bushels versus the October estimate. So if you look at the numbers on the right-hand side of that chart where I've detailed USDA's uh, ending stocks forecast month by month going back to May for this 2022 crop, not much difference between the November estimate and the October estimate, but Nathan, you and I were talking about this earlier. 
Maybe the significant thing is that that's the first time over the last several months that we've actually seen an increase in the ending stocks estimate. It starts to change the narrative a little bit, right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the momentum has clearly kind of stopped on the downward trend there. We, you know, maybe have hit a bottom and come back up. So I think it does change kind of the mentality that we've seen that increase this month. Yeah, we kind of went through the latter, uh, really almost all summer, looking at reductions in production, tighter supplies, tighter ending stocks. And it looks like that's behind us. And now the focus is really on the demand side. And the story just hasn't been that positive on the demand side. So that's really been the issue, I think, going forward. And it kind of changes that narrative, as, as we were talking about just a second ago. So ending stocks as a percentage of usage was really unchanged from October's estimate because the numbers changed on that carryover was so small. So we're still sitting at just a little over 8%, which by historical standards is still pretty tight. Um, but again, I think the concern of the trade is that if we're going to see some changes in that number going forward, it could result in maybe some increases in those ending stocks as a percentage of usage as opposed to going the other way. So you've looked at the pricing structure and given some thought to storage opportunities. So take a look uh, at that for us, Nathan. Yeah, so uh, just kind of starting out looking at what uh, the current structure of Ford cash contract bids uh, for one location in East Central Indiana uh, to give us kind of a starting point. So you can see um, that we've got uh, four contract bids, 650 uh, for delivery in November. Uh, that structure kind of increases with that uh, bid going up to about $6.64 uh, into January, so just after kind of first of uh, next year. And from there, right, uh, those four contract bids are flat. And there's two things there. One is we don't have any carry in futures markets. That's kind of going to appreciate that price as we move through. Uh, those months, or at least no carry today in those futures markets. Again, that, those, those spreads could widen as, as we move through time, but for now, that's kind of where they're at. And there's no appreciation in basis in those bids, and so that's how we end up with this flat cash price. Um, and so what you look at is compare those bids with some kind of implied break-even prices. So I just take you know, today's cash price, and I uh, impose some costs for on-farm and commercial storage and then an opportunity cost on holding onto the grain and not having sold it and used that money to uh, pay down some sort of debt or just put an opportunity cost on it. And so what you can see is those uh, current uh, forward contract bids are competitive with those break-evens, meaning you know, the price that you could forward contract for is above those break-evens or around those break-evens, uh, basically through the beginning of the year as those prices are appreciating. And then after that, Right, we really see that fall off where those bids aren't really competitive, especially with the commercial storage, uh, maybe with, with on-farm storage through February or March. Or February or March. Uh, and so really, you know, I think one of the things that we were talking about earlier that you know, I would take away from this is uh, you know, if you're looking at doing some, some hedging, uh, you're not going to want to be hedging into deferred futures contracts. Right? Again, there's no carry in those futures markets. And so whatever hedging you're doing, you'd want to be thinking about a strategy where you're hedging in the nearby and then waiting for those spreads to, to widen as we move towards expiration of these contracts and roll them forward. And again, that's a strategy you got to stay on top of, but you really there's no incentive to hedge into a deferred futures contract right now. Yeah, and as you go forward, we would probably expect to see some carry show up in those futures contracts. So that does create an opportunity, even if you want to do some pricing, to maybe capture that carry going forward and maybe earn a better return on your storage facilities. But clearly not out there at the moment, right? No, not today. <clears throat> so then let's kind of take a closer look at the basis side of that equation. So again, we got the future spread and the basis that we're both, in, both impacting um, those forward contract bids. 
So looking at the basis side of things, I want to start just looking at corn, base, uh, corn basis here in central Indiana. So this is from the crop basis tool on the Center for Commercial Ag's website. Uh, the blue line uh, is just representing a historical three-year average. So basically the previous three crop marketing years, we average basis throughout the season uh, for those years, and that gives us kind of a pattern or a trend of what we would expect to see basis do. The black line is what's currently happening in this crop marketing year. So you can see we started out pretty much in line with that historical average. Uh, we saw a basis uh, decline as we moved uh, into and through harvest, which is not unusual. We did see basis, uh, basis get weaker uh, than that historical three-year average, and at least in central Indiana, still is relatively weak, uh, 40 cents under that historical average. Again, I looked at some other regions. Central Indiana I just use because it's centrally located and you know, there's no particular reason for that. But if you look at some other regions in the state and even uh, you know, some places uh, over in Illinois or over in Ohio, uh, basis is, is, is weaker uh, in the northern half of those states, uh, but not quite as weak as what we're seeing in central Indiana. So you kind of got to look at each individual region. Then obviously if you look kind of at the southern half or the southern uh, regions of um, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, I have Southwest Indiana here in particular, we've seen a different story where again, basis weakened uh, through harvest and then um, strengthened, has, has basically bottomed out and started to strengthen as we've uh, moved uh, into the end of, of the harvest season. And so for Southwest Indiana, we've got basis basically back up uh, at that three-year average um, as of this morning's uh, basis number for this week. So then if we compare, so again, Southwest Indiana uh, is, is a regional average for all of the locations that I have access to uh, in the Southwest uh, Crop Reporting District of the state of Indiana. But I also uh, look at uh, what's going on with basis specifically along the river. So Southwest Indiana is a little bit of a proxy for what's going on on the river, but this specifically is looking only at terminals uh, that are on the river in Southern Indiana and Southern Illinois. And again, you can see a pretty similar pattern there where we had basis weaken into harvest, but has since uh, turned and strengthened back up pretty much in line with the uh, three-year historical average. So it's really interesting what's taking place with this river basis. It's really popped here in the last 10 days or two weeks, yep. right? Uh, so even though the river levels are not anywhere near back to normal, they've improved enough to allow some barge movement Barge rates have come down quite a bit the right. last two weeks, so that's really having an impact and uh, maybe a little quicker than I was expecting because I've been watching the weather and looking for those river levels to really improve, and they, they've they come up a little, but boy, they're still pretty tight. Yeah, I think I would totally agree. I mean, last month we were harping on this really negative basis being driven by what was going on with river levels and the inability to get barges down the river. Uh, and that, without you know a strong turnaround in river levels, we've seen basis really improve. And again, there's lots of factors there, like you mentioned, with uh, uh, shipping rates and things of that nature. But also, you know, we haven't really seen uh, a lot of exports on corn, like you showed us. And so, again, we'll show soybean charts in, in a little bit, and they'll, they'll look quite a bit different than this. But um, you know, we still have seen strengthening in corn basis despite some of these uh, uh, negatives to what we might expect in terms of, of where it would be. So it's just going to be kind of interesting to see how that shakes out going forward, and part of that's going to depend on moisture levels. But uh, looking at those barge rates, I think compared to the peaks that occurred earlier this fall, those barge rates are down more than 50%. Yeah. So it's, it's really changed the dynamics quite a bit here recently. So then uh, last basis chart here that I want to look at is uh, ethanol plant basis. So again, this is just an average of all the ethanol plants in the state of Indiana into kind of one basis index. 
So it's not any one particular location. And as you can see, again, a pretty similar trend. We had basis weakening into harvest, as is the pattern. Uh, and really that appears to have firmed here as we move towards the end of October into November. Uh, maybe slightly weaker than that historical three-year average, um, but not, not, uh, you know, not a lot, maybe 10 cents under that historical average. And so again, as you showed, as we have ethanol margins that are increasing, uh, as we have production increasing, it'll be interesting to see where those bids go if they start bidding up for corn um, as, as those margins are improving at ethanol plants. So you and I were talking about earlier this morning before the program about whether or not we are likely to see a repeat of what we saw last summer with those really strong basis levels. And of course, that three-year average that you're showing on the screen here was influenced pretty heavily by what took place last year. Right. Uh, that was kind of an unusual circumstance, don't you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, we could parse this out and look at the individual years, and I've done that in the past, and it might be useful to do that again at, at some point in the future because, yeah, when, anytime you're averaging across several years, and even when you have shorter periods of time, so three years isn't a whole lot, one particular year can really influence in that. And so you got to really pay attention to what, what years are in that historical average. And I would agree, you know, a lot of that uh, peak that we see in the summer is being pulled up by what happened last year. And so the chances of, of getting basis levels like we saw last year, at least at this point, don't seem likely. But uh, we'll see how the year kind of progresses. So then this uh, is a map, okay? And this gets back to Michael's point on what's going on with yields uh, kind of out in the Western Corn Belt. And this is uh, from our friends at Kansas State. They have a basis mapping tool. And so just to give you an idea of what's going on here, this is a deviation in basis from a historical average. So on our charts, we show a historical average and show a current. And so what they've done is they've looked at that deviation, that difference between what's currently happening and what we would expect to see happen. And then they've kind of charted that on a heat map, right? And so purple, darker purple colors mean that there's a wider disparity uh, in a positive direction, meaning current basis is a lot stronger than what we would typically would expect to see. And then as it moves towards you know, the lighter colors and the orange, that's where that difference is really not that big and really basically we have current basis levels that are in line with those historical averages. And so what you can see is as you move west, right? So we're really looking at Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska in the middle of, the, um, the middle of our map here. As you move west, you have really dark purple levels, meaning that uh, because yields are low, they've got very, very strong basis needing to pull corn into those regions. The further east that you move, we have you know, more orange shades where yields are uh, better, uh, and so you know they're not uh, uh, bidding up their basis quite as strongly as we're seeing further west, where where the corn is needed. Yeah, as I look at the map, though, you're still looking at some pretty strong basis levels in that Missouri River Valley. Sure. Uh, and really, isn't until you get over to the Mississippi that you start getting back to levels that are closer to historical norms, right? Right. right. So, and of course, that's heavily influenced by the, the water levels on the Mississippi. So interesting to track that and how we're going to see corn move. Um, again, this is the opposite of what we saw, I think, in the 2015-2016 crop year where we were yeah. uh, pulling corn from the west into the east. This year it's going to be pulling corn from the east uh, going to the west, right? Yeah, I think same thing in 1920 when we had planting issues. We saw the same thing where basis further east was very strong pulling corn uh, west mm -hmm. to east. Uh, so then last thing here on the corn side of things, I just want to have people thinking about, you know, where we are currently with prices uh, and whether that's something that they want to be thinking about in terms of um, making some decisions on, on pricing grain that maybe they have 
uh, in the bins after harvest um, this fall. And so basically I'm looking at a, a January delivery scenario. So we talk a lot about basis forecasting and, and one of the, the things that we found when we did some research in terms of how the ability to forecast basis uh, moves throughout the year, you know, our ability to forecast basis over short periods of time is relatively good. The returns to storage are relatively uh, not risky through the end of the year into January. And so I'm just looking at you know, what's going to take place between now and January. So looking at March 23 corn futures as my futures price to this morning, we had uh, March corn futures at $6.65. I went to the basis tool. Again, I went to central Indiana. You'd want to look at whatever particular region that you were in. Uh, and I picked out a, a basis uh, forecast or an expectation of what I think basis is going to be based on a historical average of about one cent over that. And so that puts us at a, a cash price for January delivery of $6.66. And so, uh, you know, again, uh, that is um, a little bit lower than where we were a month ago on the webinar in terms of cash price opportunity for January, as we've seen uh, futures decline a little bit between um, then and now. Uh, and so the question is, you know, is that a price that you're willing to, to price some bushels on? Uh, and, you know, I think that there's a mentality that the last several years we've seen very strong improvements in price as we moved into, um, you know, after the first of the year. And the question is, you know, what are the chances of that happening again this year? And I think that's, that's the question that people really need to be asking themselves. Yeah, Michael, uh, you always like to compare what we're being offered with your estimate of break-even. So coming out of the 22 crop, average production or average uh, productivity soils in Indiana, what's your break even? The break even is still, is, is still uh, below $6, and so these are looking at some really good margins, even on average productivity. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah. well below $6. Yeah, well below $6. $6. So, so, so we're in pretty good shape for 22. We'll talk about 23 a little bit later. That's a different story. Yeah, so I think what you and I were talking about earlier, Nathan, is the concern that some folks might be thinking we're going to, going to see a repeat of last year. Last right. year the storage strategy of, of remaining unpriced through the winter uh, into the spring paid off extremely well. Uh, but the circumstances that led us to that were a combination obviously what took place in the Black Sea region with the war in Ukraine, but also what took place in South America with respect to some weather difficulties. Right. And you put those two things together that created a scenario that made that a very positive uh, return for, for example, unhedged storage into the spring. I don't think it's all that likely that we're going to see a repeat of that. So I think uh, as you think about your strategy with, I know a lot of Indiana farmers and a lot of uh, Corn Belt farmers have a high percentage of their crop in storage at this point, be careful about thinking about that repeat strategy. I mean, there's a positive probability it could happen. but. Sure. Uh, the odds are not necessarily in favor of that. So let's just take a, speaking of odds, let's just take yeah. a look at the price distribution tool. You took a look at this earlier, right? Yeah, so again, this is from uh, the, the price distribution tool from the University of Illinois, the farm doc team over there. And so here we're just looking at the distribution of possible uh, prices uh, at expiration for the March 23 uh, corn futures contract. So basically, what is that contract going to expire at? And if you look at, I think the most useful thing here, look at the, the range uh, on the, uh, the table on the bottom right-hand side. And so if you look, there's a 25% chance we're less than $6, and there's a 25% chance we're over 7 And so that range between 6 and $7, we've got about a 50% chance we're going to be somewhere in there. That's a narrower range than we've seen of, of late um, on, on this tool in terms of you know, where prices could go. So this is suggesting 
somewhat that, you know, maybe there's a little le less risk there. But I think, Jim, some of your point was that, you know, we're, we're starting to stack up factors that are moving us towards maybe thinking that price is going to move towards the bottom side of that range as opposed to the, the having some information in a situation like last year where we were moving towards the top side of that range, right? Yeah, and I think it also might be useful to explain to our, our viewers exactly how this tool works and how they generate these numbers. So this, this is based on a combination of current futures prices and option premiums um, along with a volatility estimate. And so they're essentially using option premiums that exist in the marketplace to help assign probabilities to what futures prices are likely to do. So stated another way, this is sort of what people or market participants are sort of betting on. Um, that's the, the source of the, of the data. It's not, I think sometimes people look at these kind of charts and think uh, it's some researchers sitting around kind of making up the numbers, but that's not the case at all, right? It is market driven. So. Um, and, it, and it changes over time as people's attitudes change, uh, as their attitudes about what's going to take place changes, especially as volatility changes. Correct, it has yeah. a huge impact on this. So, uh, so keep an eye on that. But as you think about your returns for the 22 crop, uh, the, way, the way I guess I would put it is if you sell anywhere close to current prices, you're going to lock in a pretty good year for 2022. Don't let that get away from you yeah, as yeah. we start looking at what could happen in 2023 is kind of the point that we're trying to get across here. So let's take a look at the soybean side. A little bit like corn, USDA did increase the yield estimate for the 22 crop up a little bit, up over 50 bushels per acre now. Um, up, that's less than 1% compared to a month ago. That does leave it down, I think, almost 3% compared to last year. Uh, again, you look at the state level information, um, Kind of interesting there, Michael. I mean, Minnesota uh, got a nice bump up. Uh, most of the other ones on that chart seem to be a little bit on the downside, but they've kind of made up for it elsewhere, right? Yeah, you, you look at you look at the U.S. Uh, at the U.S. level. We're right right about trend yield uh, for the U.S. Uh, but several of the states, uh, several of the states, particularly in the Eastern Corn Belt, where the, the corn looked like it was uh, at trend or slightly below, soybeans are not quite quite as good. Yeah. Uh, for those states. And I should point out that this chart is looking at the percent change relative to last year. Yes. This next chart looks at the percent change relative to USDA's October estimate, which is maybe a little more Yeah, and they didn't change many, many of those numbers for the Eastern Corn Belt. They did change some of the, the Western Corn Belt numbers. So let's, let's don't focus so much on the changes here. Just focus on how low the yields really are. Again, going back to South Dakota, Nebraska, and Kansas. Kansas, 28 bushel. Uh, now, when you look at corn and, and soybeans for Kansas, you have to remember that that corn yield includes a lot of irrigated corn uh, in it, where the soybeans are almost all, uh, are, are very vast majority are, are non-irrigated uh, and, and, and are in the wet, on the uh, eastern uh, two-thirds of the state. Uh, and so 28 is a really low yield for Kansas. Yeah, so kind of interesting. I think the other thing is, you know, my home state, Missouri, uh, came up, uh, what, 6.7% compared to the October estimate. That's kind of a surprise. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, so anyway, so if you look at um, where USDA's crop production estimate came out relative to trade expectations prior to the report, a little bit like corn, it wasn't quite the midpoint. It was a little bit t skewed towards the upper end. Uh, but it wasn't certainly out of the range of estimates. And if you compare that to what we saw in, for example, October and September when USDA's estimates were well below trade expectations, that was not the case this time around. And in fact, uh, you know, we saw a negative response. There was a little more than just what was going on with this report in terms of the negative response we saw this week, but nevertheless, the, some negativity there. Um, so let's just kind of review some of the changes in the balance sheet. There weren't a lot this time. 
Uh, as we mentioned, increased the yield to 50.2 bushels per acre on a national average basis, up from 49.8 last month. That puts production at 4.346 billion bushels, up compared to uh, 4.313 last month. Uh, looking at the usage categories, they increased the crush usage by 10 million bushels. No change in the export forecast, that's still sitting at 2.045 billion bushels. The carryover does come up 20 million bushels, so basically increase in round numbers, there's some rounding going on here, uh, but in round numbers, boosting production up by about 30 million bushels, usage up by 10, and you wind up with a, a carryover that's about 20 million bushels larger than it was last month. That's not a huge change, but when carryover is as tight as it was projected, that starts to make a little bit of a difference. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Um, Nathan referenced this a, a few minutes ago, but if you look at the exports for soybeans, the chart looks different than what we showed for corn. The story on corn was very weak exports relative to prior years, and that was sort of the case with soybeans until just recently. Uh, but we've seen the soybean uh, exports pop here the last couple of weeks, and that's made a difference. So if you look at exports so far to all destinations, uh, larger than last year, larger than two years ago, Exports to China down compared to both last year and two years ago, uh, but not down as much as they were if I'd have shown this chart a little earlier in the fall. So uh, the fact that we've seen those exports pick up, I think has had some market impacts. You're gonna talk about that mm -hmm. with respect to basis in a bit. Um, if you look at the ending stocks forecast, this is the chart that shows USDA's uh, estimates for the 22 crop estimates going uh, forward, starting back in May. They started the year out with an estimate coming out of the 22 crop into the 23 crop year of over 300 million bushels. That came down pretty consistently to that 200 million bushel mark. And now, a little bit like corn, this is the first time we've seen a bump up in a while. So again, changes that, that trend just a little bit and maybe cast a little bit of a negative light with respect to what's taking place. And from this point forward, you really don't expect to see any serious uh, changes in yield. Uh, there is gonna be another yield update after the first of the year, but likely not going to see much in the way of change. So the focus really now is on what's taking place with respect to usage. But if you look at the ending stocks as a percentage of usage, in recent months, that number has been a little over 4%. In fact, at one point we had it below 4%. Uh, now we're up to 5%. So that's still a very tight carryover by historical standards, but it's a little less tight than what we were projecting and what USDA was projecting just a, just a couple of months ago. So. Again, you've taken a look at the opportunities on the soybean side. Yeah, so really, you know, if we start with these forward contract bids, pretty pretty similar uh, kind of explanation of what's going on here as what we saw for corn, and that is, you know, the the forward contract bids from now through basically January of next year are pretty competitive with with what I have for these implied break evens, at least on the on farm storage scenario where we have a little lower cost structure. Uh, so you can see the January twenty three cash bid. Uh, is at $14.36, uh, just below what I have in terms of a, a break-even price on on-farm storage. After that, right, again, they bounce around a little bit, but those those Ford contract bids are basically flat. There's a little bit of carry in, in the soybean futures market that's uh, helping out those bids a little bit later in the year, uh, but basically we have basis bids that are uh, flat throughout the rest of the crop marketing year. So again, similar to like what we said for uh, corn, you know, if you're thinking about some sort of hedging strategy, hedging into deferred uh, soybean futures, you'd, you'd pick up a little bit of carry, uh, but it really wouldn't be very much. You'd be better off, again, like we said, 
hedging into uh, nearby soybean futures and, and then rolling as those spreads potentially widen as we uh, move through the crop market a year. Yeah, and that's, we don't necessarily expect the spreads to widen anything close to full carry, but no. we do expect them this over the course of the winter to improve, right? Correct. And the February March here looks a little worse than corn, so I, I agree with you through January, but I think February March here uh, really favors maybe selling earlier than that. Uh, more so than corn, perhaps. Correct, yeah. Corn was basically right at those implied break-evens into February and March, and so you're right. That, that yeah. positivity maybe carried a little further yeah. in terms of where those bids are, but no, yeah, with soybeans, I mean, yeah. even in January, you're potentially under we, that. We've been using this 6% for a few months now, but one of the things to point out here is your opportunity costs are increasing That's exactly rapidly right. with these increase in interest rates, and so keep that in mind yeah. uh, when you're making your storage decisions into 23. Yeah, that's definitely going to have an impact on 23. Uh, You've got an expensive crop, <laughs> uh, you know, $14, $14 here. Yeah. That adds up quickly. It does. Nathan and I were talking earlier. I did an example in my class about storage hedging, and just to get make sure the students had a flair for that, or a flavor for that, uh, I used a 9% example, and it makes a big difference, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not forecasting a 9% operating loan rate for next year, but it's definitely uh, something to be thinking about going forward. So then uh, if we take a, a look at what's going on with soybean basis, uh, so starting out in central Indiana, looking at the blue line there, historical two-year average, and then kind of what we've seen happen this year with the black line. So again, we saw basis decline uh, through harvest. Again, it appears that it's firmed and started to strengthen, uh, again, back towards that historical average as we move towards the latter half uh, of October into November. Uh, really, you know, right below that three-year, or excuse me, two-year historical average uh, for central Indiana for, for the second week in November. If you look at what's going on then in southwest Indiana, it's a little bit different geography, again, with southwest Indi Indiana kind of serving as a proxy for, for export markets. Uh, we've seen the same decline, really a strong decline there in soybean basis. Again, going back to last month, we talked about with river levels, that was really hammering basis uh, in the southern part of the state. Uh, and what we've seen is that really firmed up and has strengthened considerably in the last two weeks. And again, some of that probably goes back to what you showed on the export uh, uh, numbers here in the last couple of weeks. But also it's a little surprising to me because I mean the river levels maybe have improved slightly, but not a whole lot. But basis has really turned around uh, for soybeans there in, in southwest Indiana. Yeah, I think maybe the variable to monitor is what's going on with those barge rates. And the, right. and, the, and the collapse in the barge rates, I suppose, really tells the story. It's made it uh, less costly. Yep. And that's a reflection of their ability to put some heavier loads in those barges and, and uh, maybe free up some of those barges that had been idled. So uh, really interesting going forward. So if you look at those, those numbers, it's kind of phenomenal, right? <laughs> it really is, yeah. And again, so this is really just looking at the same thing, slightly different. So instead of looking at kind of the regional average there in southwest Indiana, again, I'm just pulling out the terminals that are specifically on the river uh, there in southern Indiana and southern Illinois. And again, you can see the same sort of trend where we had really weak basis there in October. Uh, and, and again, that's turned around uh, quite a bit here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, again, same reasons uh, that have been driving those basis levels there uh, on the river the last couple of weeks. You know, sometimes it's useful to just kind of remind ourselves of what basis is trying to do, right? When basis got so negative, so weak there in, in October and, and uh, well, kind of mid-October and, and to late October, the grain trade was really saying, find a place to store soybeans without bringing it to us because yep. we've got no place to go with it, right? Yeah. That was the signal being sent. And so then... As all of a sudden, as those transportation links really start to open up, 
uh, it's made a huge impact on that basis level and all of a sudden the trade has a home for those beans and, and looking for opportunities to buy them and move them through the system. Um, this also raises some issues that we continue to have these discussions about what's going on with respect to a possible rail strike. Mm, and yeah. we're focused right now on river levels, but a rail strike would not be good either, right? No. So that creates another whole <laughs> no. set of logistical issues, um, especially for the ethanol plants yes. with their ability to move, and that would have a big impact on basis as well. So I guess we're, we've kind of pushed that one back down uh, roughly another month or so until early December, but at some point uh, we need to see some resolution take place there. So then this is uh, looking at um, uh, soybean processor basis bids, again, for the state of Indiana. So I'm just taking all the, the soybean processors, at least all the ones that I have access to the data for, and I'm averaging them together into this kind of index of soybean processor basis. And again, what you can see there is, again, the sharp decline, not, not near as negative as what we saw there on the river, again, because they weren't dealing with the, the issues that were going on down there. Uh, but again, as we moved into harvest, weaker basis is typical. But again, as we've moved towards the end of harvest, uh, we've seen that uh, uh, basis there at those soybean processors strengthening in the last several weeks. It's interesting, you know, some of that may be some competition uh, with, um, you know, those export markets in terms of as those bids have gone up, uh, inland terminals have had to increase their bids to secure uh, beans as well. And so it'll be interesting to see if that kind of follows along that historical average there, or if we see uh, basis at those soybean processors uh, strengthening, you know, above that historical average here over the next several months. And again, a little bit like we talked earlier with corn uh, and with the ethanol basis, as you look out towards next summer, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that we're going to see the basis level strengthen as much as we saw in uh, what you're showing on the chart there, right? Would you yeah, agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Again, you know, same idea. We've got, you know, several years average there into the blue line. And so as you move into the summer months, you know, last summer we had very, very strong uh, soybean processor basis uh, throughout much of the eastern Corn Belt, Illinois and Indiana. Uh, and so again, to, to use that as a forecast might be a little bit strong. I can kind of pull out some individual years maybe uh, in a future uh, webinar to kind of show us, you know, what, what maybe what a range of potential outcomes is uh, and show how that average is maybe influenced by a few really good years. So Michael, you and I have talked about this a little bit. I guess the counter to that would be what's going on with respect to uh, movement towards renewable diesel, right? And what impact that's going to have on the soybean market and whether or not we start to see impacts of that showing up in 23 or not, right? Yeah, it just depends on how fast that, that how fast that moves along. I mean, I, I think long term it's going to be very positive. Yeah. Whether that how positive that will be in 23, I, I'm not sure. A lot of discussion about the fact that going forward, historically we've crushed soybeans to get meal. Going forward, we could be crushing soybeans to get oil, right? Yes. And that's uh, could change the dynamics of this industry quite a bit. But I'm not convinced it's going to show up necessarily in next summer's basis levels. But uh, we'll see. So then again, just kind of giving us some cash prices to latch onto as we think about marketing here over the, the rest of the uh, calendar year and into next year, looking at a January uh, delivery scenario. I'm looking at March 23 soybean futures, 14.50 this morning. Again, went to the crop basis tool for central Indiana and pulled out uh, an expectation of basis uh, in January of 13 cents under that March futures contract, putting you at a $14.37. Uh, cash price. And so again, you know, comparing to, to Michael's break-evens for 22, we're still looking at very yes. profitable levels uh, for soybeans. And so again, you know, you really got to be thinking about, you know, what your strategy is this year as it relates to uh, uh, marketing grain that you have in storage. Because again, 
you know, if you're using last year as kind of your proxy for I'm just going to follow that pattern, uh, it doesn't look like this year is going to look like uh, last year. So you might need to really uh, kind of mentally account for the fact that you need to take a fresh look at what your marketing strategy is going to be this year. So let's uh, drop back a little bit and think about that in the context of some of the research you've done over the years mm -hmm. looking at some of these historical uh, storage strategies. So looking at your research, storage unhedged between now and the end of the year is usually pretty low risk for both corn and soybeans, correct? Correct, yeah. You don't see a lot of variability in those numbers. Pretty low risk strategy. And at that point, you might have a better idea as to what's going to take place uh, with respect to what's going on, uh, particularly in South America. Correct. Although, if things shake out this fall as really positive for planting season in South America, we could see some weakness develop there, right? Absolutely, right? So, I mean, you know, again, we're going to look at this on the next chart. Like, well, what is, what is my risk on soybean futures, right? Uh, those March futures, what's the range of potential outcomes? If I did kind of wait, now again, this gets us all the way to March expiration. You were kind of saying, like, we'll wait till January and then see what happens. So this, this pushes us a little further than, than what you were describing. But again, it gives us kind of some, some range of potential outcomes. And so again, if I focus in on that table on the bottom kind of right-hand side of the chart here, 25th percentile, so meaning you know we've got a 25% chance that we got soybean prices that are less than 1330. 75th percentile, we got a 25% chance that uh, soybean, uh, March soybean futures prices are more than 1530 at March expiration, right? So a, a wider range than what we were looking at with corn, so a $2 range uh, for that 25th and that 75th percentile. And so again, um, you know, th there is certainly downside risk to kind of this wait and see strategy on the future side of, of where that could head. Uh, but again, just in terms of the strategy of holding on between now and the end of the year, slightly different than what we're showing here, tends to be lower risk, but you know, there certainly is still downside risk. And you know, we didn't put uh, updated estimates with respect to South American production on this month in our charts, and the reason is USDA didn't make any changes in that, in that regard. So, but I think the key is to think about how big the supplies coming out of South America could be this year relative to last year when they had some weather problems. Mm -hmm. If they get back to a little more of a normal weather situation, uh, with some expansion and acreage down there, that combination could have a big impact on prices. So getting back to your point earlier, Michael, and I think we're going to maybe take a look at your break-evens here in just a second, but uh, don't let some profitable opportunities get away, right? That's certainly the case when you're looking at 22. I mean, certainly you want to continue to build working capital because 23 does not look near as well, near as good. And and, and 23, uh, believe it or not, we're, we're, we, we keep, I keep increasing these break-evens. Uh, now they're up about 8 to 10 percent uh, compared to 22, where it, when I did this a couple months ago or a few months ago, it was closer to 5, 6 percent. So very similar to uh, forecast for general inflation. Uh, you know, in previous year we were well above uh, general inflation, but this this next year it looks like it could be similar to general inflation. But that's certainly bad news. Uh, obviously, when you look at uh, when you look at price prospects for for December 23, for example, uh, you know, just for just for basis, you're looking at corn prices 590 to six dollars. Uh, that compares nice. That compares favorably uh, on the high productivity to a break even of 560. But it certainly doesn't leave you much cushion even at the high productivity. But the average productivity doesn't look so good. 
Uh, and, and I think we're picking this up in the Ag Economy Barometer. The sediment's relatively pessimistic, and a, and a big part of that is related to input costs. And this is why this chart, chart surely clearly shows why that large increase in 21 and, and no relief uh, when we go into 20, uh, 22 and 23. Yeah, when you look at the break-even numbers that you had on there for 20 and 21, and then think about the prices we were able to sell a lot of those crops at. Yeah. We had some very positive returns, uh, and now all of a sudden we're looking at a, a much different situation potentially in 2023, right? Definitely. Uh, it's a very similar story for for soybeans. When you look at uh, when you look at November uh, 23 soybeans and adjust for basis, you're looking around 1350 uh, approximately, which compares a little bit uh, better than corn does with that average productivity soil. Uh, and, and and certainly on the high productivity, it looks like there's a potential for some uh, positive economic profit there, or positive but positive earnings. But uh, but the, but it's the same story again. I mean, certainly the margins look much much smaller in 23 uh, compared to what we had in. 21 and 22. Looking at uh, the difference in earnings between corn, cor uh, corn and soybeans, this has changed a little bit. Uh, when I when I first started doing, I started doing this. Uh, uh, it looked like 23 was going to be a year where corn was a little more profitable than soy than soybeans. Uh, the, the 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 relationship between those prices has changed uh, in the last month or two. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you go back a month or two, and and the relationship was about two to one. Two. 2.1 to 2.1 to 1. Now it's closer to 2.2, which is still below the historical average, but the historical average isn't really relevant here because of the high cost of production, particularly for corn. And so uh, and so the bottom line is, is soybeans is looking a little bit better uh, than it, it has for, for several months. So as you look at your projections for 23, how much change have you seen month by month as you've done those month by month changes? About $100. It went anywhere from $50 positive for corn, $50 positive for soybeans. Okay. So what's your forecast? What, what's going to happen with respect to acreage? This, this isn't a big enough number. Sometimes when I do this chart, it looks like it's pretty obvious that it's very strong towards corn, very strong towards soybeans. But what this, what this tells me is there's going to be a lot of competition for acreage, just like there was in 22. Uh, and then and you throw in that wheat price is pretty good. It's the same situation we're back in 22 where you got three crops that are really competing for acres. Because, okay. you know, as you showed, corn and soybeans are pretty tight supplies. Uh, and there's a large demand for wheat as long as that Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict continues. And so we're looking at a lot of competition for acres. This just shows you the, uh, the net farm income projection for 23. I'm sticking my neck out here a little bit, but I even put that 23 number up there. But this is our, our best guess of where things might be heading based on, uh, based on projected costs and, and some uh, current futures prices adjusted for basis. And, and obviously 23 looks much, much worse. And it looks like it's about the worst it's been since 19, and it's even a little worse uh, than 19. And so that's that's what I, that's what I was talking about earlier. Uh, this leads us into discussion of of of, of uh, what to do with working capital. Uh, we've really built up working capital in 21, 22, because obviously we had some had some pretty good earn, earnings there. Just be really cautious what you do with that working capital in the next few months. Uh, think, think long and hard about whether uh, you really do need to, to, uh, to buy machinery to mitigate taxes. That may be a good decision for some people, but you need to give it some thought because you want to preserve that working capital because 23 does not look like it's going to be a very good year and it's going to be harder to pay bills in 23 than it was in 22. Uh, also, uh, sometimes when we have high income, we like to prepay debt. Uh, we like to pay down debt, particularly uh, longer term debt. 
you know, think, think about that twice. I mean, think, think about what that's going to do to your working capital. You know, given the uncertainty we're looking at in 23 and 24, I, I would even add 24 to that, you might want to have a, uh, keep some of that working capital in place just in case 23 and 24 uh, turn out to be uh, really poor years. Yeah, cash is king in this kind of environment Definitely. going forward, right? And, and, and as we know from the economy problem, there's a lot of uncertainty out there, probably more so than we've seen in, in a long time. So I want to talk about the replacement margin working capital a little bit. Uh, this is uh, for those people that love finance, uh, like me. Uh, but the replacement margin is something I use a lot. And the reason I use this and talk about this with farm audiences, and also lenders, of course, lenders love this ratio, is it measures a farm's ability to cover owner withdrawals, which is family living expenses, uh, any, anything, uh, income taxes, social security taxes, things like that, principal on term debt, you know, scheduled principal on term debt, and then it's also cash used for capital replacement, i.e. depreciation. Theoretically, we'd like to be able to, uh, as, 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 as machines depreciating out, we'd like to be able to replace that machinery, so we've got that included in this ratio. Uh, and so working capital is typically measured by using the current ratio and is used to cover cash short, shortfalls and to make down payments and asset purchases. What we're looking at here is a a potentially rather low replacement margin in 23, and and that ties that ties back to the statement I made earlier that we want to try to preserve that working capital, to make sure that we have enough money for owner withdrawals, we have enough money to, to pay principal payment, and hopefully uh, a little bit of money uh, to replace some machinery that really but that really needs to be replaced because it's uh, it's, it's depreciated out, and so uh, and so it's a much much different situation uh, in 23 uh, compared to where we were where we've been. 21 and 22, and I think we have a chart on that, Jim. Uh, this shows that very clearly. You know, this is the this is my West Central Indiana Keynes farm, and long term, this farm has done fairly well uh, in terms of being able to cover all the all those things I was talking about, and actually has extra money to expand. Uh, and, and so that's what the positive blue line means uh, that it has it has some additional funds uh, to to expand uh, to, to buy some land and, and to uh, uh, add additional acres and, and that certainly was the case in 21 and 22 uh, build up working capital during those years but look at 23 uh, 23 looks pretty grim uh, at this point and, and again you have to go back to 19 uh, uh, since we've seen something like that and and when you look at this chart and you see 14 to, to 19 there was pretty low replacement margin. Uh, if you tie that back to what was happening with capital expenditures, they were lower during that time period. And so we could be moving into a period again where the capital expenditures might be, might be lower. So I think to kind of summarize what you're, and the reason you brought this up really in this particular webinar is we know that a lot of farms are engaged right now and over the next few weeks in visiting with their tax advisor and computing their potential net farm and taxable uh, farm income and thinking about ways to reduce taxes. Yes. And the challenge that I think you're throwing out to them is to remember to think about not just reducing taxable uh, tax liabilities, but also think about the long-run health of the yes. business, and that entails thinking about working capital. It's really a form of contingency planning, doing scenario analysis, and is there a scenario where I'm going to be short funds in 23? And, and all I'm saying is it's pretty likely uh, that the funds are not going to be readily available in 23. At least look what current prices are and, and the current break-evens. So you want to you want to, uh, to, to account for that. That's that's certainly possible uh, that we could be short funds ne uh, uh, next year and, and make sure that we preserve some of that working capital. And there is other ways uh, to mitigate taxes. That's the important point. I mean, for example, you can defer income. 
You know, we, we were talking about uh, marketing decisions. You could you could sell more of the, more of this year's crop uh, in, in 23, realizing that uh, next fall the, the cash flow might not be quite as good. And so that's certainly a strategy. Prepay expenses. There's several other things we can do uh, from a tax planning standpoint besides buy machinery. Now I'm not saying that you don't you shouldn't buy machinery. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying use caution. Yeah. And the, the real message, I think, is to think about not just your tax liability situation this year, but think about the long-run yeah. health of the business. That's, that's really, the, I think, the message from my perspective. Well, that wraps up our webinar for today. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, we'll have another one of these. Uh, actually, we're going to do a couple of these in December. We'll be speaking at uh, the Farm Machinery Show down in Indianapolis in the middle of December. I think that's on December 15th. And we'll also have a program here on the web as well. So a couple of those coming up. Uh, the details are always available at our website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. And so with that, on behalf of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Nathan Thompson and Dr. Michael Langemeyer, thanks for joining us. And I'm Jim Mintert on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. <music>